BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 4 of The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar, by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter 4. The Mysterious Traveller. The evening before, I had sent my automobile to Rouen by the highway. I was to travel to Rouen by rail, on my way to visit some friends that live on the banks of the Seine. At Paris, a few minutes before the train started, Seven gentlemen entered my compartment. Five of them were smoking. No matter that the journey was a short one, the thought of travelling with such a company was not agreeable to me, especially as the car was built on the old model, without a corridor. I picked up my overcoat, my newspapers, and my timetable, and sought refuge in a neighbouring compartment. It was occupied by a lady who, at sight of me, made a gesture of annoyance that did not escape my notice, and she leaned toward a gentleman who was standing on the step and was, no doubt, her husband. The gentleman scrutinized me closely, and apparently my appearance did not displease him, for he smiled as he spoke to his wife with the air of one who reassures a frightened child. She smiled also, and gave me a friendly glance as if she now understood that I was one of those gallant men with whom a woman can remain shut up for two hours in a little box six feet square, and have nothing to fear. Her husband said to her, "'I have an important appointment, my dear, and cannot wait any longer. Adieu.' He kissed her affectionately and went away. His wife threw him a few kisses and waved her handkerchief. The whistle sounded, and the train started." At that precise moment, and despite the protests of the guards, the door was opened, and a man rushed into our compartment. My companion, who was standing and arranging her luggage, uttered a cry of terror and fell upon the seat. I am not a coward, far from it, but I confess that such intrusions at the last minute are always disconcerting. They have a suspicious, unnatural aspect. However, the appearance of the new arrival greatly modified the unfavourable impression produced by his precipitant action. He was correctly and elegantly dressed, wore a tasteful cravat, correct gloves, and his face was refined and intelligent. But where the devil had I seen that face before? Because, beyond all possible doubt, I had seen it. And yet the memory of it was so vague and indistinct that I felt it would be useless to try to recall it at that time. Then, directing my attention to the lady, I was amazed at the pallor and anxiety I saw in her face. She was looking at her neighbour. They occupied seats on the same side of the compartment, with an expression of intense alarm, and I perceived that one of her trembling hands was slowly gliding toward a little travelling-bag that was lying on the seat about twenty inches from her. She finished by seizing it and nervously drawing it to her. Our eyes met, and I read in hers so much anxiety and fear that I could not refrain from speaking to her. 
are you ill madame shall i open the window her only reply was a gesture indicating that she was afraid of our companion i smiled as her husband had done shrugged my shoulders and explained to her in pantomime that she had nothing to fear that i was there and besides the gentleman appeared to be a very harmless individual at that moment he turned toward us scrutinized both of us from head to foot then settled down in his corner and paid us no more attention after a short silence the lady as if she had mustered all her energy to perform a desperate act said to me in an almost inaudible voice do you know who is on our train who he he i assure you who is he arsène lupin she had not taken her eyes off our companion and it was to him rather than to me that she uttered the syllables of that disquieting name he drew his hat over his face was that to conceal his agitation or simply to arrange himself for sleep then i said to her yesterday through contumacy arsène lupin was sentenced to twenty years imprisonment at hard labour therefore it is improbable that he would be so imprudent to-day as to show himself in public moreover the newspapers have announced his appearance in turkey since his escape from the sante but he is on this train at the present moment the lady proclaimed with the obvious intention of being heard by our companion my husband is one of the directors in the penitentiary service and it was the station-master himself who told us that a search was being made for arsène lupin they may have been mistaken no he was seen in the waiting-room he bought a first-class ticket for rouen he has disappeared the guard at the waiting-room door did not see him pass and it is supposed that he had got into the express that leaves ten minutes after us in that case they will be sure to catch him unless at the last moment he leapt from that train to come here into our train which is quite probable which is almost certain if so he will be arrested just the same for the employees and guards would no doubt observe his passage from one train to the other and when we arrive at rouen they will arrest him there him never he will find some means of escape in that case i wish him bon voyage but in the meantime think what he may do what i don't know he may do anything she was greatly agitated and truly the situation justified to some extent her nervous excitement i was impelled to say to her of course there are many strange coincidences but you need have no fear admitting that arsène lupin is on this train he will not commit any indiscretion he will be only too happy to escape the peril that already threatens him my words did not reassure her but she remained silent for a time i unfolded my newspapers and read reports of arsène lupin's trial but as they contained nothing that was new to me i was not greatly interested moreover i was tired and sleepy i felt my eyelids close and my head drop but monsieur you are not going to sleep she seized my newspaper and looked at me with indignation certainly not i said that would be very imprudent of course i assented i struggled to keep awake i looked through the window at the landscape and the fleeting clouds but in a short time all that became confused and indistinct the image of the nervous lady and the drowsy gentleman were effaced from my memory and I was buried in the soothing depths of a profound sleep. The tranquillity of my response was soon disturbed by disquieting dreams, wherein a creature that had played the part and bore the name of Arsène Lupin held an important place. He appeared to me with his back laden with articles of value. He leapt over walls and plundered castles. But the outlines of that creature, who was no longer Arsène Lupin, assumed a more definite form he came toward me growing larger and larger leapt into the compartment with incredible agility and landed squarely on my chest with a cry of fright and pain i awoke the man the traveller our companion with his knee on my breast held me by the throat my sight was very indistinct for my eyes were suffused with blood i could see the lady in a corner of the compartment convulsed with fright i tried even not to resist 
Besides, I did not have the strength. My temples throbbed. I was almost strangled. One minute more, and I would have breathed my last. The man must have realized it, for he relaxed his grip, but did not remove his hand. Then he took a cord, in which he had prepared a slipknot, and tied my wrists together. In an instant I was bound, gagged, and helpless. Certainly he accomplished the trick with an ease and skill that revealed the hand of a master. He was no doubt a professional thief. Not a word, not a nervous movement, only coolness and audacity. And I was there, lying on the bench, bound like a mummy. I, Arsène Lupin! It was anything but a laughing matter. And yet, despite the gravity of the situation, I keenly appreciated the humour and irony that it involved. Arsène Lupin seized and bound like a novice, robbed as if I were an unsophisticated rustic, for you must understand the scoundrel had deprived me of my purse and wallet. Arsène Lupin, a victim, duped, vanquished! What an adventure! The lady did not move. He did not even notice her. He contented himself with picking up her travelling-bag that had fallen to the floor and taking from it the jewels, purse, and gold and silver trinkets that it contained. The lady opened her eyes, trembled with fear, drew the rings from her fingers, and handed them to the man as if she wished to spare him unnecessary trouble. He took the rings and looked at her. She swooned. Then, quite unruffled, he resumed his seat lighted a cigarette, and proceeded to examine the treasure that he had acquired. The examination appeared to give him perfect satisfaction. But I was not so well satisfied. I do not speak of the twelve thousand francs of which I had been unduly deprived. That was only a temporary loss, because I was certain that I would recover possession of that money after a very brief delay, together with the important papers contained in my wallet, plans, specifications, addresses, lists of correspondence and compromising letters. But for the moment a more immediate and more serious question troubled me. How would this affair end? What would be the outcome of this adventure? As you can imagine, the disturbance created by my passage through the Saint-Lazare station has not escaped my notice. Going to visit friends who knew me under the name of Guillaume Berlat, and amongst whom my resemblance to Arsène Lupin was a subject of many innocent jests, I could not assume a disguise, and my presence had been remarked. So beyond question the commissary of police at Rouen, notified by telegraph and assisted by numerous agents, would be awaiting the train, would question all suspicious passengers, and proceed to search the cars. Of course I had foreseen all that, but it had not disturbed me, as I was certain that the police of Rouen would not be any shrewder than the police of Paris, and that I could escape recognition. Would it not be sufficient for me to carelessly display my card as député, thanks to which I had inspired complete confidence in the gatekeeper at Saint-Lazare? But the situation was greatly changed. I was no longer free. It was impossible to attempt one of my usual tricks. In one of the compartments the commissary of police would find M. Arsène Lupin, bound hand and foot, as docile as a lamb, packed up, all ready to be dumped into a prison van. He would have simply to accept delivery of the parcel, the same as if it were so much merchandise or a basket of fruit and vegetables. Yet to avoid that shameful denouement, what could I do, bound and gagged as I was? And the train was rushing on toward Rouen, the next and only station. Another problem was presented, in which I was less interested, but the solution of which aroused my professional curiosity. What were the intentions of my rascally companion? Of course, if I had been alone, he could, on our arrival at Rouen, leave the car slowly and fearlessly. But the lady? As soon as the door of the compartment should be opened, the lady, now so quiet and humble, would scream and call for help. That was the dilemma that perplexed me. Why had he not reduced her to a helpless condition similar to mine? that would have given him ample time to disappear before his double crime was discovered. He was still smoking, with his eyes fixed upon the window that was now being streaked with drops of rain. Once he turned, picked up my timetable, and consulted it. The lady had to feign a continued lack of consciousness in order to deceive the enemy. But fits of coughing, provoked by the smoke, 
exposed her true condition as to me i was very uncomfortable and very tired and i meditated i plotted the train was rushing on joyously intoxicated with its own speed saint etienne at that moment the man arose and took two steps toward us which caused the lady to utter a cry of alarm and fall into a genuine swoon what was the man about to do he lowered the window on our side a heavy rain was now falling and by a gesture the man expressed his annoyance at his not having an umbrella or an overcoat he glanced at the rack the lady's umbrella was there he took it he also took my overcoat and put it on we were now crossing the seine he turned up the bottoms of his trousers then leaned over and raised the exterior latch of the door was he going to throw himself upon the track at that speed it would have been instant death we now entered a tunnel the man opened the door halfway and stood on the upper step what folly the darkness the smoke the noise all gave a fantastic appearance to his actions but suddenly the train diminished its speed a moment later it increased its speed then slowed up again probably some repairs were being made in that part of the tunnel which obliged the trains to diminish their speed and the man was aware of the fact he immediately stepped down to the lower step closed the door behind him and leapt to the ground he was gone the lady immediately recovered her wits and her first act was to lament the loss of her jewels i gave her an imploring look she understood and quickly removed the gag that stifled me she wished to untie the cords that bound me but i prevented her no no the police must see everything exactly as it stands i want them to see what the rascal did to us suppose i pull the alarm bell too late you should have done that when he made the attack on me but he would have killed me oh monsieur didn't i tell you that he was on this train i recognized him from his portrait and now he has gone off with my jewels don't worry the police will catch him catch arsene lupin never that depends on you madame listen when we arrive at rouen be at the door and call make a noise the police and the railway employees will come tell what you have seen the assault made on me and the flight of arsene lupin give a description of him soft hat umbrella yours grey overcoat yours said she what mine oh, not at all it was his i didn't have any it seems to me he didn't have one when he came in yes yes unless the coat was one that someone had forgotten and left in the rack at all events he had it when he went away and that is the essential point a grey overcoat remember ah oh, i forgot you must tell your name first thing you do your husband's official position will stimulate the zeal of the police we arrived at the station i gave her some further instructions in a rather imperious tone tell them my name guillaume berlat if necessary say that you know me that will save time we must expedite the preliminary investigation the important thing is the pursuit of arsene lupin your jewels remember let there be no mistake guillaume berlat a friend of your husband i understand guillaume berlat she was already calling and gesticulating as soon as the train stopped several men entered the compartment the critical moment had come panting for breath the lady exclaimed arsene lupin he attacked us he stole my jewels i am madame renault my husband is a director of the penitentiary service ah oh, here is my brother georges ardel director of the crédit rouennais you must know she embraced a young man who had just joined us and whom the commissary saluted then she continued weeping yes arsene lupin while monsieur was sleeping he seized him by the throat monsieur berlat a friend of my husband the commissary asked but where is arsene lupin he leapt from the train when passing through the tunnel are you sure that it was he am i sure i recognized him perfectly besides he was seen at the saint lazare station he wore a soft hat no a hard felt like that said the commissary pointing to my hat he had a soft hat i am sure repeated madame renault and a grey overcoat 
"'Yes, that is right,' replied the commissary. "'The telegram says he wore a grey overcoat with a black velvet collar.' "'Exactly! A black velvet collar!' exclaimed Madame Renaud triumphantly. I breathed freely. Ah, oh, the excellent friend I had in that little woman! The police agents had now released me. I bit my lips until they ran blood. Stooping over, with my handkerchief over my mouth, an attitude quite natural in a person who has remained for a long time in an uncomfortable position, and whose mouth shows the bloody marks of the gag, I addressed the commissary in a weak voice. "'Monsieur, it was Arsène Lupin. There is no doubt about that. If we make haste, he can be caught yet. I think I may be of some service to you.' The railway car, in which the crime occurred, was detached from the train to serve as a mute witness at the official investigation. The train continued on its way to Havre. We were then conducted to the station-master's office through a crowd of curious spectators. Then I had a sudden access of doubt and discretion. Under some pretext or other, I must gain my automobile and escape. To remain there was dangerous. Something might happen. For instance, a telegram from Paris, and I would be lost. Yes, but what about my thief? Abandoned to my own resources in an unfamiliar country, I could not hope to catch him. Ah, I must make the attempt, I said to myself. It may be a difficult game, but an amusing one, and the stake is well worth the trouble. And when the commissary asked us to repeat the story of the robbery, I exclaimed, oh, Monsieur, really, Arsène Lupin is getting the start of us. My automobile is waiting in the courtyard. If you will be so kind as to use it, we can try. The commissary smiled and replied, The idea is a good one. So good, indeed, that it is already being carried out. Two of my men have set out on bicycles. They have been gone for some time. Where did they go? To the entrance of the tunnel. There they will gather evidence, secure witnesses, and follow on the track of Arsène Lupin. I could not refrain from shrugging my shoulders as I replied, Your men will not secure any evidence or any witnesses. Really? Arsène Lupin will not allow anyone to see him emerge from the tunnel. He will take the first road to Rouen, where we will arrest him. He will not go to Rouen? Then he will remain in the vicinity, where his capture will be even more certain. He will not remain in the vicinity. Oh, ho! and where will he hide? I looked at my watch and said, At the present moment Arsène Lupin is prowling around the station at Darnetal. At ten-fifty, that is, in twenty-two minutes from now, he will take the train that goes from Rouen to Amiens. Do you think so? How do you know it? Oh, it is quite simple. While we were in the car, Arsène Lupin consulted my railway guide. Why did he do it? Was there, not far from the spot where he disappeared, another line of railway, a station upon that line, and a train stopping at that station? On consulting my railway guide, I found such to be the case. "'Really, monsieur,' said the commissary, "'that is a marvellous deduction. I congratulate you on your skill.' I was now convinced that I had made a mistake in displaying so much cleverness. The commissary regarded me with astonishment, and I thought a slight suspicion entered his official mind. Oh, scarcely that, for the photographs distributed, broadcast by the police department, were too imperfect. They presented an Arsène Lupin so different from the one he had before him that he could not possibly recognize me by it. But all the same he was troubled, confused, and ill at ease. Oh, Dieu, nothing stimulates the comprehension so much as the loss of a pocket-book and the desire to recover it, and it seems to me that if you will give me two of your men, we may be able to— oh, I beg of you, monsieur le commissaire, cried Madame Renaud, listen to monsieur Barlat. The intervention of my excellent friend was decisive. Pronounced by her, the wife of an influential official, the name of Berlat became really my own, and gave me an identity that no mere suspicion could affect. The commissary arose and said, "'Believe me, Monsieur Berlat, I shall be delighted to see you succeed. I am as much interested as you are in the arrest of Arsène Lupin.' He accompanied me to the automobile and introduced two of his men— Honoré Massol and Gaston Delivet, who were assigned to assist me. My chauffeur cranked up the car, and I took my place at the wheel. A few seconds later we left the station. I was saved. 
oh, i must confess that in rolling over the boulevards that surrounded the old norman city in my swift thirty-five horsepower moreau lepton i experienced a deep feeling of pride and the motor responded sympathetically to my desires at right and left the trees flew past us with startling rapidity and i free out of danger had simply to arrange my little personal affairs with the two honest representatives of the rouen police who were sitting behind me arsène lupin was going in search of arsène lupin modest guardians of social order gaston delivet and honoré massol how valuable was your assistance what would i have done without you without you many times at the cross-roads i might have taken the wrong route without you arsène lupin would have made a mistake and the other would have escaped but the end was not yet far from it i had yet to capture the thief and recover the stolen papers under no circumstances must my two acolytes be permitted to see those papers much less to seize them that was a point that might give me some difficulty we arrived at darnetal three minutes after the departure of the train true i had the consolation of learning that a man wearing a grey overcoat with a black velvet collar had taken the train at the station he had bought a second-class ticket for amiens certainly my debut as detective was a promising one delivet said to me the train is express and the next stop is montérolier buchy in nineteen minutes if we do not reach there before arsène lupin he can proceed to amiens or change for the train going to clare and from that point reach dieppe or paris how far to montérolier twenty-three kilometres twenty-three kilometres in nineteen minutes we will be there ahead of him we were off again never had my faithful moreau lepton responded to my impatience with such ardour and regularity it participated in my anxiety it endorsed my determination it comprehended my animosity against that rascally arsène lupin the knave the traitor turn to the right cried delivet then to the left we fairly flew scarcely touching the ground the milestones looked like little timid beasts that vanished at our approach suddenly at a turn of the road we saw a vortex of smoke it was the northern express for a kilometre it was a struggle side by side but an unequal struggle in which the issue was certain we won the race by twenty lengths in three seconds we were on the platform standing before the second-class carriages the doors were opened and some passengers alighted but not my thief we made a search through the compartments no sign of arsène lupin Sapristi! i cried he must have recognized me in the automobile as we were racing side by side and he leapt from the train ah there he is now crossing the track i started in pursuit of the man followed by my two acolytes or rather followed by one of them for the other massol proved himself to be a runner of exceptional speed and endurance in a few moments he had made an appreciable gain upon the fugitive the man noticed it leapt over a hedge scampered across a meadow and entered a thick grove when we reached this grove massol was waiting for us he went no farther for fear of losing us quite right my dear friend i said after such a run our victim must be out of wind we will catch him now i examined the surroundings with the idea of proceeding alone in the arrest of the fugitive in order to recover my papers concerning which the authorities would doubtless ask many disagreeable questions then i returned to my companions and said it is all quite easy you massol take your place at the left you delivet at the right from there you can observe the entire posterior line of the bush and he cannot escape without you seeing him except by that ravine and i shall watch it if he does not come out voluntarily i will enter and drive him out toward one or the other of you you have simply to wait oh i forgot in case i need you a pistol-shot massol and delivet walked away to their respective posts as soon as they had disappeared i entered the grove with the greatest precaution so as to be neither seen nor heard i encountered dense thickets through which narrow paths had been cut but the overhanging boughs compelled me to adopt a stooping posture 
one of these paths led to a clearing in which i found footsteps upon the wet grass i followed them they led me to the foot of a mound which was surmounted by a deserted dilapidated hovel he must be there i said to myself it is a well-chosen retreat i crept cautiously to the side of the building a slight noise informed me that he was there and then through an opening i saw him his back was turned toward me in two bounds i was upon him he tried to fire a revolver that he held in his hand but he had no time i threw him to the ground in such a manner that his arms were beneath him twisted and helpless whilst i held him down with my knee on his breast listen my boy i whispered in his ear i am arsene lupin you are to deliver over to me immediately and gracefully my pocket-book and the lady's jewels and in return therefore i will save you from the police and enroll you amongst my friends one word yes or no yes he murmured very good your escape this morning was well planned i congratulate you i arose he fumbled in his pocket drew out a large knife and tried to strike me with it imbecile i exclaimed with one hand i parried the attack with the other i gave him a sharp blow on the carotid artery he fell stunned in my pocket-book i recovered my papers and bank-notes out of curiosity i took his upon an envelope addressed to him i read his name pierre onfray it startled me pierre onfray the assassin of the rue la fontaine at auteuil pierre onfray he who had cut the throats of madame d'elbois and her two daughters i leaned over him yes those were the features which in the compartment had evoked in me the memory of a face i could not then recall the time was passing i placed in an envelope two banknotes of one hundred francs each with a card bearing these words arsene lupin to his worthy colleagues honore massol and gaston delivet as a slight token of his gratitude i placed it in a prominent spot in the room where they would be sure to find it beside it i placed madame brunot's handbag why could i not return it to the lady who had befriended me i must confess that i had taken from it everything that possessed any interest or value leaving there only a shell-comb a stick of rouge dorin for the lips and an empty purse but you know business is business and then really her husband is engaged in such a dishonourable vocation the man was becoming conscious what was i to do i was unable to save him or condemn him so i took his revolver and fired a shot in the air my two acolytes will come and attend to his case i said to myself as i hastened away by the road through the ravine twenty minutes later i was seated in my automobile at four o'clock i telegraphed to my friends at rouen that an unexpected event would prevent me from making my promised visit between ourselves considering what my friends must now know my visit is postponed indefinitely a cruel disillusion for them at six o'clock i was in paris the evening newspapers informed me that pierre ronfray had been captured at last next day let us not despise the advantages of judicious advertising the echo de france published this sensational item yesterday near buchy after numerous exciting incidents arsène lupin effected the arrest of pierre ronfray the assassin of the rue la fontaine had robbed madame renault wife of the director in the penitentiary service in a railway carriage on the paris havre line arsène lupin restored to madame renault the handbag that contained her jewels and gave a generous recompense to the two detectives who had assisted him in making that dramatic arrest End of chapter four Chapter Five of the Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar, by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter Five: The Queen's Necklace. Two or three times each year, on occasions of unusual importance, such as the balls at the Austrian Embassy or the soirees of Lady Billingston the countess de drusoubise wore upon her white shoulders 
the queen's necklace it was indeed the famous necklace the legendary necklace that beaumar and bassange court jewellers had made for madame du barry the veritable necklace that the cardinal de rohan soubise intended to give to marie antoinette queen of france and the same that the adventurous jeanne de valois countess de la motte had pulled to pieces one evening in february seventeen eighty five with the aid of her husband and their accomplice Rétaux de villette to tell the truth the mounting alone was genuine Rétaux de villette had kept it whilst the count de la motte and his wife scattered to the four winds of heaven the beautiful stone so carefully chosen by Bomer. later he sold the mounting to gaston de Dreux-Soubise, nephew and heir of the cardinal who repurchased the few diamonds that remained in the possession of the english jeweller jeffreys supplemented them with other stones of the same size but of much inferior quality and thus restored the marvellous necklace to the form in which it had come from the hands of Bomer and bassange for nearly a century the house of dreux soubise had prided itself upon the possession of this historic jewel although adverse circumstances had greatly reduced their fortune they preferred to curtail their household expenses rather than part with this relic of royalty more particularly the present count clung to it as a man clings to the home of his ancestors as a matter of prudence he had rented a safety deposit box at the crédit lyonnais in which to keep it he went for it himself on the afternoon of the day on which his wife wished to wear it and he himself carried it back next morning on this particular evening at the reception given at the palais de castille the countess achieved a remarkable success and king christian in whose honour the fete was given commented on her grace and beauty the thousand facets of the diamond sparkled and shone like flames of fire about her shapely neck and shoulders and it is safe to say that none but she could have borne the weight of such an ornament with so much ease and grace this was a double triumph and the count de dreux was highly elated when they returned to their chamber in the old house of the faubourg saint-germain he was proud of his wife and quite as proud perhaps of the necklace that had conferred added lustre to his noble house for generations his wife also regarded the necklace with an almost childish vanity and it was not without regret that she removed it from her shoulders and handed it to her husband who admired it as passionately as if he had never seen it before then having placed it in its case of red leather stamped with the cardinal's arms he passed into an adjoining room which was simply an alcove or cabinet that had been cut off from their chamber and which could be entered only by means of a door at the foot of their bed as he had done on previous occasions he hid it on a high shelf amongst hat-boxes and piles of linen he closed the door and retired next morning he arose about nine o'clock intending to go to the crédit lyonnais before breakfast he dressed drank a cup of coffee and went to the stables to give his orders the condition of one of the horses worried him he caused it to be exercised in his presence then he returned to his wife who had not yet left the chamber her maid was dressing her hair when her husband entered she asked are you going out yes as far as the bank of course that is wise he entered the cabinet but after a few seconds and without any sign of astonishment he asked did you take it my dear what no i have not taken anything you must have moved it not at all i have not even opened that door he appeared at the door disconcerted and stammered in a scarcely intelligible voice you 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 haven't it wasn't you then she hastened to his assistance and together they made a thorough search throwing the boxes to the floor and overturning the piles of linen then the count said quite discouraged it is useless to look any more i put it here on this shelf you must be mistaken no no it was on this shelf nowhere else they lighted a candle as the room was quite dark and then carried out all the linen and other articles that the room contained and when the room was emptied they confessed in despair that the famous necklace had disappeared 
without losing time in vain lamentations the countess notified the commissary of police m valorbe who came at once and after hearing their story inquired of the count are you sure that no one passed through your chamber during the night absolutely sure as i am a very light sleeper besides the chamber door was bolted and i remember unbolting it this morning when my wife rang for her maid and there is no other entrance to the cabinet none no windows yes but it is closed up i will look at it candles were lighted and m valorbe observed at once that the lower half of the window was covered by a large press which was however so narrow that it did not touch the casement on either side on what does this window open a small inner court and you have a floor above this two but on a level with the servant's floor there is a close grating over the court that is why this room is so dark when the press was moved they found that the window was fastened which would not have been the case if any one had entered that way unless said the count they went out through our chamber in that case you would have found the door unbolted the commissary considered the situation for a moment then asked the countess did any of your servants know that you wore the necklace last evening certainly i didn't conceal the fact but nobody knew that it was hidden in that cabinet no one no one unless be quite sure madame as it is a very important point she turned to her husband and said i was thinking of henriette henriette she didn't know where we kept it are you sure who is this woman henriette asked m valorbe a schoolmate who was disowned by her family for marrying beneath her after her husband's death i furnished an apartment in this house for her and her son she is clever with her needle and has done some work for me what floor is she on same as ours at the end of the corridor and i think the window of her kitchen opens on this little court does it not yes just opposite ours m valorbe then asked to see henriette they went to her apartment she was sewing whilst her son raoul about six years old was sitting beside her reading the commissary was surprised to see the wretched apartment that had been provided for the woman it consisted of one room without a fireplace and a very small room that served as a kitchen the commissary proceeded to question her she appeared to be overwhelmed on learning of the theft last evening she had herself dressed the countess and placed the necklace upon her shoulders good god she exclaimed it can't be possible and you have no idea not the least suspicion is it possible that the thief may have passed through your room she laughed heartily never supposing that she could be an object of suspicion <laughs> but i have not left my room i never go out and perhaps you have not seen she opened the kitchen window and said see it is at least three metres to the ledge of the opposite window who told you that we supposed the theft might have been committed in that way but the necklace was in the cabinet wasn't it how do you know that why i've always known that it was kept there at night it had been mentioned in my presence her face though still young bore unmistakable traces of sorrow and resignation and it now assumed an expression of anxiety as if some danger threatened her she drew her son toward her the child took her hand and kissed it affectionately when they were alone again the count said to the commissary i do not suppose you suspect henriette i can answer for her she is honesty itself i quite agree with you replied m valorbe at most i thought there might have been an unconscious complicity but i confess that even that theory must be abandoned as it does not help solve the problem now before us the commissary of police abandoned the investigation which was now taken up and completed by the examining judge he questioned the servants examined the condition of the bolt experimented with the opening and closing of the cabinet window and explored the little court from top to bottom all was in vain the bolt was intact 
the window could not be opened or closed from the outside the inquiries especially concerned henriette for in spite of everything they always turned in her direction they made a thorough investigation of her past life and ascertained that during the last three years she had left the house only four times and her business on those occasions was satisfactorily explained as a matter of fact she acted as chambermaid and seamstress to the countess who treated her with great strictness and even severity at the end of a week the examining judge had secured no more definite information than the commissary of police the judge said admitting that we know the guilty party which we do not we are confronted by the fact that we do not know how the theft was committed we are brought face to face with two obstacles a door and a window both closed and fastened it is thus a double mystery how could any one enter and moreover how could any one escape leaving behind him a bolted door and a fastened window at the end of four months the secret opinion of the judge was that the count and countess being hard pressed for money which was their normal condition had sold the queen's necklace he closed the investigation the loss of the famous jewel was a severe blow to the dru soubise their credit being no longer propped up by the reserve fund that such a treasure constituted they found themselves confronted by more exacting creditors and money-lenders they were obliged to cut down to the quick to sell or mortgage every article that possessed any commercial value in brief it would have been their ruin if two large legacies from some distant relatives had not saved them their pride also suffered a downfall as if they had lost a quartering from their escutcheon and strange to relate it was upon her former schoolmate henriette that the countess vented her spleen toward her the countess displayed the most spiteful feelings and even openly accused her first henriette was relegated to the servants quarters and next day discharged for some time the count and countess passed an uneventful life they travelled a great deal only one incident of record occurred during that period some months after the departure of henriette the countess was surprised when she received and read the following letter signed by henriette madame i do not know how to thank you for it was you was it not who sent me that it could not have been any one else no one but you knows where i live if i am wrong excuse me and accept my sincere thanks for your past favours what did the letter mean the present or past favours of the countess consisted principally of injustice and neglect why then this letter of thanks when asked for an explanation henriette replied that she had received a letter through the mails enclosing two banknotes of one thousand francs each the envelope which she enclosed with her reply bore the paris postmark and was addressed in a handwriting that was obviously disguised now whence came those two thousand francs who had sent them and why had they sent them henriette received a similar letter and a like sum of money twelve months later and a third time and a fourth and each year for a period of six years with this difference that in the fifth and sixth years the sum was doubled there was another difference the post-office authorities having seized one of these letters under the pretext that it was not registered the last two letters were duly sent according to the postal regulations the first dated from saint-germain the other from suresnes the writer signed the first one anquity and the other pechard the addresses that he gave were false at the end of six years henriette died and the mystery remained unsolved all these events are known to the public the case was one of those which excite public interest and it was a strange coincidence that this necklace which had caused such a great commotion in france at the close of the eighteenth century should create a similar commotion a century later but what i am about to relate is known only to the parties directly interested and a few others from whom the count exacted a promise of secrecy as it is probable that some day or other that promise will be broken i have no hesitation in rending the veil and thus disclosing the key to the mystery the explanation of the letter published in the morning papers two days ago an extraordinary letter which increased if possible the mists and shadows that enveloped this inscrutable drama five days ago 
a number of guests were dining with the Count de Drusoubise. There were several ladies present, including his two nieces and his cousin, and the following gentlemen, the president of Essaville, the deputy Beauchat, the chevalier Floriani, whom the Count had known in Sicily, and General Marquis de Rousière, an old club friend. After the repast, coffee was served by the ladies, who gave the gentlemen permission to smoke their cigarettes, provided they would not desert the salon. The conversation was general, and finally one of the guests chanced to speak of celebrated crimes, and that gave the Marquis of Rousière, who delighted to tease the Count, an opportunity to mention the affair of the Queen's necklace, a subject that the Count detested. Each one expressed his own opinion of the affair, and of course their various theories were not only contradictory, but impossible. "'And you, monsieur,' said the countess to the chevalier Floriani, "'what is your opinion?' "'Oh, I—I I have no opinion, madame.' All the guests protested, for the chevalier had just related, in an entertaining manner, various adventures in which he had participated with his father, a magistrate at Palermo, and which established his judgment and taste in such manners. "'I confess,' said he, "'I have sometimes succeeded in unravelling mysteries that the cleverest detectives have renounced. Yet I do not claim to be Sherlock Holmes. Moreover, I know very little about the affair of the Queen's necklace.' Everybody now turned to the Count, who was thus obliged, quite unwillingly, to narrate all the circumstances connected with the theft. The Chevalier listened reflected, asked a few questions, and said, "'It is very strange. At first sight the problem appears to be a very simple one.' The Count shrugged his shoulders. The others drew closer to the Chevalier, who continued in a dogmatic tone. "'As a general rule, in order to find the author of a crime or a theft, it is necessary to determine how that crime or theft was committed, or at least how it could have been committed.' In the present case, nothing is more simple, because we are face to face not with several theories, but with one positive fact, that is to say, the thief could only enter by the chamber door or the window of the cabinet. Now a person cannot open a bolted door from the outside, therefore he must have entered through the window. But it was closed and fastened, and we found it fastened afterward, declared the Count. In order to do that, continued Floriani, without heeding the interruption, he had simply to construct a bridge, a plank or a ladder, between the balcony of the kitchen and the ledge of the window, and as the jewel-case— But I repeat that the window was fastened, exclaimed the Count impatiently. This time Floriani was obliged to reply. He did so with the greatest tranquillity, as if the objection was the most insignificant affair in the world. I will admit that it was, but is there not a transom in the upper part of the window? How do you know that? In the first place that was customary in houses of that date, and in the second place, without such a transom, the theft cannot be explained. Yes, there is one, but it was closed, the same as the window. Consequently, we did not pay attention to it. That was a mistake, for if you had examined it, you would have found that it had been opened. But how? I presume that, like all others, it opens by means of a wire with a ring on the lower end. Yes, but I do not see. Now, through a hole in the window, a person could, by the aid of some instrument, let us say a poker with a hook at the end, grip the ring, pull down, and open the transom. The Count laughed and said, <laughs> Excellent! Excellent! Your scheme is very cleverly constructed. But you overlook one thing, monsieur. There is no hole in the window. There was a hole. Not since we would have seen it. In order to see it, you must look for it, and no one has looked. The hole is there. It must be there, at the side of the window, in the putty, in a vertical direction, of course. The Count arose. He was greatly excited. He paced up and down the room two or three times in a nervous manner. Then, approaching Floriani, said, "'Nobody has been in that room since. Nothing has been changed.' "'Very well, monsieur. You can easily satisfy yourself that my explanation is correct.' 
it does not agree with the facts established by the examining judge you have seen nothing and yet you contradict all that we have seen and all that we know floriani paid no attention to the count's petulance he simply smiled and said mon dieu monsieur i submit my theory that is all if i am mistaken you can easily prove it i will do so at once i confess that your assurance the count muttered a few more words then suddenly rushed to the door and passed out not a word was uttered in his absence and this profound silence gave the situation an air of almost tragic importance finally the count returned he was pale and nervous he said to his friends in a trembling voice i beg your pardon the revelations of the chevalier were so unexpected i should never have thought his wife questioned him eagerly speak what is it he stammered the the, the the hole is there at the very spot at the side of the window he seized the chevalier's arm and said to him in an imperious tone now monsieur proceed i admit that you are right so far but now that is not all go on tell us the rest of it floriani disengaged his arm gently and after a moment continued well in my opinion this is what happened the thief knowing that the countess was going to wear the necklace that evening had prepared his gangway or bridge during your absence he watched you through the window and saw you hide the necklace afterward he cut the glass and pulled the ring ah but the distance was so great that it would be impossible for him to reach the window fasting through the transom well then if he could not open the window by reaching through the transom he must have crawled through the transom impossible it is too small no man could crawl through it then it was not a man declared floriani what if the transom is too small to admit a man it must have been a child a child did you not say that your friend henriette had a son yes a son named raoul then in all probability it was raoul who committed the theft what proof have you of that what proof plenty of it for instance he stopped and reflected for a moment then continued for instance that gangway or bridge it is improbable that the child could have brought it in from outside the house and carried it away again without being observed you must have used something close at hand in the little room used by henriette as a kitchen were there not some shelves against the wall on which she placed her pans and dishes two shelves to the best of my memory are you sure that those shelves are really fastened to the wooden brackets that support them for if they are not we could be justified in presuming that the child removed them fastened them together and thus formed his bridge perhaps also since there was a stove we might find the bent poker that he used to open the transom without saying a word the count left the room and this time those present did not feel the nervous anxiety they had experienced the first time they were confident that floriani was right and no one was surprised when the count returned and declared it was the child everything proves it you have seen the shelves and the poker yes the shelves have been unnailed and the poker is there yet but the countess exclaimed you had better say it was his mother henriette is the guilty party she must have compelled her son no declared the chevalier the mother had nothing to do with it nonsense they occupied the same room the child could not have done it without the mother's knowledge true they lived in the same room but all this happened in the adjoining room during the night while the mother was asleep and the necklace said the count it would have been found amongst the child's things pardon me he had been out that morning on which you found him reading he had just come from school and perhaps the commissary of police instead of wasting his time on the innocent mother would have been better employed in searching the child's desk amongst his school books but how do you explain those two thousand francs that henriette received each year are they not evidence of her complicity 
if she had been an accomplice would she have thanked you for that money then was she not closely watched but the child being free could easily go to a neighbouring city negotiate with some dealer and sell him one diamond or two diamonds as he might wish upon condition that the money should be sent from paris and that proceeding could be repeated from year to year an indescribable anxiety oppressed the drusoubis and their guests there was something in the tone and attitude of floriani something more than the chevalier's assurance which from the beginning had so annoyed the count there was a touch of irony that seemed rather hostile than sympathetic but the count affected to laugh as he said <laughs> all that is very ingenious and interesting and i congratulate you upon your vivid imagination no not at all replied floriani with the utmost gravity i imagine nothing i simply describe the events as they must have occurred but what do you know about them what you yourself have told me i picture to myself the life of the mother and child down there in the country the illness of the mother the schemes of and inventions of the child to sell the precious stones in order to save his mother's life or at least soothe her dying moments her illness overcomes her she dies years roll on the child becomes a man and then and now i will give my imagination a free rein let us suppose that the man feels a desire to return to the home of his childhood that he does so and that he meets there certain people who suspect and accuse his mother do you realize the sorrow and anguish of such an interview in the very house wherein the original drama was played his words seemed to echo for a few seconds in the ensuing silence and one could read upon the faces of the count and countess de dreux a bewildered effort to comprehend his meaning and at the same time the fear and anguish of such a comprehension the count spoke at last and said who are you monsieur i the chevalier floriani whom you met at palermo and whom you have been gracious enough to invite to your house on several occasions then what does this story mean oh nothing at all it is simply a pastime so far as i am concerned i endeavour to depict the pleasure that henriette's son if he still lives would have in telling you that he was the guilty party and that he did it because his mother was unhappy as she was on the point of losing the place of a servant by which she lived and because the child suffered at sight of his mother's sorrow he spoke with suppressed emotion rose partially and inclined toward the countess there could be no doubt that the chevalier floriani was henriette's son his attitude and words proclaimed it besides was it not his obvious intention and desire to be recognized as such the count hesitated what action would he take against the audacious guest ring provoke a scandal unmask the man who had once robbed him but that was a long time ago and who would believe that absurd story about the guilty child no better far to accept the situation and pretend not to comprehend the true meaning of it so the count turning to floriani exclaimed your story is very curious very entertaining i enjoyed it much but what do you think has become of this young man this model son i hope he has not abandoned the career in which he made such a brilliant debut oh certainly not after such a debut to steal the queen's necklace at six years of age the celebrated necklace that was coveted by marie antoinette and to steal it remarked floriani falling in with the count's mood without costing him the slightest trouble without any one thinking to examine the condition of the window or to observe that the window-sill was too clean that window-sill which he had wiped in order to efface the marks he had made in the thick dust we must admit that it was sufficient to turn the head of a boy at that age it was all so easy he had simply to desire the thing and reach out his hand to get it and he reached out his hand <laughs> both hands replied the chevalier laughing his companions received a shock what mystery surrounded the life of the so-called floriani how wonderful must have been the life of that adventurer 
a thief at six years of age, and who to-day, in search of excitement, or, at most, to gratify a feeling of resentment, had come to brave his victim in her own house, audaciously, foolishly, and yet with all the grace and delicacy of a courteous guest. He arose and approached the countess to bid her adieu. She recoiled unconsciously. He smiled. "'Oh, madame, you are afraid of me. Did I pursue my role of parlour magician a step too far?' She controlled herself and replied, with her accustomed ease, "'Not at all, monsieur. The legend of that dutiful son interested me very much, and I am pleased to know that my necklace had such a brilliant destiny. But do you not think that the son of that woman, that Henriette, was the victim of hereditary influence in the choice of his vocation?' He shuddered, feeling the point, and replied, "'I am sure of it.' and, moreover, his natural tendency to crime must have been very strong, or he would have been discouraged. Why so? Because, as you must know, the majority of the diamonds were false. The only genuine stones were the few purchased from the English jeweller, the others having been sold one by one to meet the cruel necessities of life. It was still the Queen's necklace, monsieur, replied the Countess haughtily and that is something that he, Henriette's son, could not appreciate. He was able to appreciate, madame, that, whether true or false, the necklace was nothing more than an object of parade, an emblem of senseless pride. The Count made a threatening gesture, but his wife stopped him. Monsieur, she said, if the man to whom you allude has the slightest sense of honour, she stopped, intimidated by Floriani's cool manner. "'If that man has the slightest sense of honour, he repeated. She felt that she would not gain anything by speaking to him in that manner, and in spite of her anger and indignation, trembling as she was from humiliated pride, she said to him, almost politely, "'Monsieur, the legend says that Réteau de Villette, when in possession of the Queen's necklace, did not disfigure the mounting. He understood that the diamonds were simply the ornament, the accessory, and that the mounting was the essential work, the creation of the artist, and he respected it accordingly. Do you think that this man had the same feeling? I have no doubt that the mounting still exists. The child respected it. Well, monsieur, if you should happen to meet him, will you tell him that he unjustly keeps possession of a relic that is the property and pride of a certain family, and that although the stones have been removed, the Queen's necklace still belongs to the house of Dreux Soubise. It belongs to us as much as our name or our honour. The Chevalier replied simply, I shall tell him, madame. He bowed to her, saluted the Count and the other guests, and departed. Four days later, the Countess de Dreux found upon the table in her chamber a red leather case bearing the Cardinal's arms. She opened it and found the Queen's necklace. But as all things must, in the life of a man who strives for unity and logic, converge toward the same goal, and as a little advertising never does any harm, on the following day the Echo de France published these sensational lines. The Queen's necklace the famous historical jewellery stolen from the family of Drusoubis, has been recovered by Arsène Lupin, who hastened to restore it to its rightful owner. We cannot too highly commend such a delicate and chivalrous act. End of chapter 5